Hello, I'm Claire Armistead. Before we hear this week's podcast, we just wanted to point you in the direction of our sponsor, Squarespace. For more information on building beautiful websites, go to squarespace.com. The Guardian. I've given up drugs, don't believe in God, and love has gone wrong, so now I find my happiness and flight in the world around me. Hello, and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. This week, we speak with two women who have found the answers they were looking for in the great outdoors. One by moving to the furthest northwestern island of the Orkneys, and the other... You have this sense, I think, that you're, that you're a human being ducking in and out of the machine, and you're still real, and everything else has just become this kind of futuristic world. And so we weave our way through the landscapes of two books which open up the inner worlds of their two writers by embracing nature and the world outside them. Amy Liptrot grew up on a farm on the remote Scottish island of Orkney and like many children raised in rural idylls, she couldn't wait to get out. Her escape took her to London and to a rackety, chemically enhanced life that began to spiral out of control. The Outrun, her first book, which takes its name from the no-man's land between her parents' farm and the sea cliffs, is both an account of her reckoning with herself and a love song to the windswept islands to which she returned as a recovering alcoholic. Back in the summer, I went searching for bats in one of Orkney's only woods, using a special detector that converts their echolocation into noise audible by humans. There are more dimensions than I thought. Frequencies we can't usually hear, habitats we can't normally breathe in. It is thrilling to enter them, just for a short time. I read about how we might have more than five senses, like the heat sensors in our skin that can tell if something's warm without actually touching it, or how we're able to know if we're upside down. When I came to Pape, I was attracted to the idea that, by living and working within its coast, I could become familiar with the whole island and know all of its residents. Small islands are easier to comprehend than cities, and I thought I could be able to understand it all. However, I find out about the coastline paradox, which explains how it is impossible accurately to measure the length of a coastline. The smaller the scale used to measure, the longer it becomes. A coastline is fractal, breaking into ever smaller inlets and cracks and promontories and bumps from hundreds of miles to millimetres. This accounts for the vastly different estimates for the length of coastline in Orkney and how, the longer I'm on Pape, the more there is to discover. I'm thrilled and daunted. People with longer sober times in AA say that the good things about their new lives are things they didn't imagine, things they couldn't explain to a newcomer. They say that what you think you wanted is likely not, in fact, to be what you want. I never saw myself as, and resist becoming, the wholesome outdoors type. But the things I experience keep dragging me in. There are moments that thrill and glow. The few seconds a silver male hen harrier flies beside my car one afternoon. The porpoise surfacing around our small boat. The wonderful sight of a herd of cattle let out on grass after a winter indoors, skipping and jumping, tails straight up in the air with joy. I'm free-falling, but grabbing these things as I plunge. Maybe this is what happens. I've given up drugs, don't believe in God, and love has gone wrong, so now I find my happiness and flight in the world around me. 
Snorkeling is a completely new experience. I enter a new ecosystem, stimulating my thoughts and senses, shaking myself out of sad routine. I feel elated and refreshed afterwards, wanting to tell others of the strange, seldom-seen world lying so close to our everyday lives, the secrets under piers and at the edge of car parks. I have not gone mad. Dad doesn't take any medication to control his manic depression and has not been seriously ill for years. He has found a way to deal with it himself, to recognise the triggers, to know the shifts and the lie of the ocean bed. Since I got sober, I sometimes find myself surprised and made joyful by normal life. It can feel like a hallucination, this stunning reality. Face down in shallow water, coated in neoprene and breathing through a tube, I feel like I've opened a door that has always been in my house but I had never noticed. Life can be bigger and richer than I knew. There's so much in that passage of the way this book functions. One of the fascinating things I find is the way that you um, interweave so intimately your own experience, your internal geology, as you talk about Mm -hmm. it in one chapter, and the geology of the Orkneys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to, if something was just purely my kind of thought processes and um, emotions, it really wouldn't be that readable. But, uh, I mean, I have a background as a journalist in which we're sort of trained to always back things up with examples and use a lot of practical and uh, concrete information. And I think that kind of informed me when I was writing. And then I kind of struck on this technique, if you will, about finding some parallels between the natural world and changes that were perhaps going on inside myself at uh, quite a radical time of change for for myself, yeah. Tell us about the journey that brought you to this book. You grew up on Orkney. To parents who didn't belong there, they'd moved there. What What a strange life decision that brought you to it in the first place. Yeah, well, I think my folks ended up buying a farm in Orkney just because it was the only place that they could afford to buy a farm. Um, uh, And it was kind of in the 70s when there was uh, sort of beginning to be more English people and and incomers moving to the Scottish islands. And that's how I ended up being born there. I I don't think I realised that it maybe was a slightly more unusual or interesting um, childhood until a long time after I'd left and lived in in London for 10 years and actually when I returned um, back to Orkney after I got out of rehab in in London. So you left Orkney as a, Mm. you you felt, it seems from your reporting, quite alienated. You were regarded by the other children as an outsider or at least you felt you were regarded. Yeah, I think I was always aware that I wasn't uh, Orcadian um, and I wanted to leave, but how much that's just to do with my own character rather than, um, you know, my my heritage, I, I don't know. But I didn't particularly see myself going back there uh, when I went off to, uh, well, first of all, as a student and then to London in my early 20s. And so you arrived in London in Hackney mm-hmm. um, and indeed in London Fields, which is now sort of very hip and happening area mm-hmm. of London. And you just sort of hung out on the fields drinking. <laughs> and that was the beginning of a of a whole new you. Well, I mean, I think, you know, as always, what's in the book is a simplification of, of you know, uh, this whole time periods and jobs and, and boyfriends of the, in my real life that are, that's not in the book. But I think I use that scene in London Fields to kind of exemplify a, a time and a place and a kind of uh, 
scene that was going on in East London, which was quite exciting, and I've often thought it's been ripe for writing about. The late nineties, this was. Well, in the early two thousands, really. Early two thousands. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I guess uh, hipsters and scenesters in in East London, which is something that I found very exciting and had a great deal of affection for, as as well as kind of wanting to satire it a, a little bit, ridiculously dressed. Uh, people uh, peacocking around and um, yeah, and people kind of also becoming who they, they want to be, you know. But you got out of control. Yeah, I think for, for me, as, um, as maybe other people started getting a bit older and drinking less and partying less, I, uh, with each month and year, was drinking more and, and drinking alone, you know, and this is... Um, this is actually addiction and alcoholism which distinguishes it from the you know the kind of um uh regular drinking and partying that most people are able to to manage but it took me quite a long time to accept and realize that you know this was actually you know was a alcoholic and secondly that the only way for me to um to deal with that was be by not drinking at all, uh, not picking up the first drink, as they, they say in AA, um, which had to be quite a number of failed attempts to control and stop my drinking and a lot of um, increasingly bad things happening to me um, before I was able to actually get to that point. And so part of this is it's a diary of recovery from alcoholism mm-hmm. and you talk quite intimately about mm-hmm. the your relationship with the AA mm-hmm. which is quite rare because you're not supposed to are you when you join the AA <laughs> well there is one of the AA 12 traditions which are different than the 12 steps does have this um idea of anonymity at the level of press radio I can't remember exactly what the words are and there are different interpretations of the anonymity what I certainly hold it to be and I'm very strict about is not talking about the other people in meetings and some people extend that to actually maintaining your own anonymity about attending the meetings which I'm aware of but I sort of decided that you know this this is my own story and um, I own it and I'm quite happy to, to talk about it. So then you decided as part of this to take yourself back to Orkney and not only to Orkney but to even more remote islands than Orkney and for anybody who doesn't know about <laughs> those islands talk a little bit about those islands for people who might not know exactly how far and distant yeah, and well, bleak they are. Yeah Orkney is a, is a group of islands just off the, the north coast of Scotland but I grew up on what we call the mainland which is the largest island and actually when you're there it's strange but you almost forget that that's an island and you think of the smaller Orkney Island which there are about 30 inhabitants we call them the Isles so it's all all sort of relative and the populations of different islands range from thousands down to um, there's one island where there's just two people living on them. And I grew up on a farm on the west coast of the mainland. But when I was writing the book, I actually went to live on the furthest northwest island, which is called um, Papa Westry or Papi, which is home to just 70 people. And I kind of think that people sometimes when they have, haven't visited Orkney have a mental picture of it maybe what Pappy's like is a bit more like what they're picturing just with the you know small shop and the church and a tiny school whereas the mainland has two small towns and supermarkets and things like that. And one of the really fascinating things is uh, is how you're right out on the edge of the ocean mm-hmm. but you're entirely connected as well because you take with you your smartphone uh-huh. and you're, you use it. I, this is something I haven't mm. read in this sort of nature mm. writing that, that your smartphone becomes both a way to connect you back to London mm-hmm. but also becomes a way of, of familiarising yourself with what is actually going on in the nature around you. Yeah, well I was really keen to write about kind of the internet and, and digital technology partly because 
although I wanted to write about Orkney and nature and show what's unique and beautiful about the place, I also wanted to represent it as a modern working place. And, you know, for all of us, the devices are a part of our lives. And, you know, I don't think I would have gone to live on Pappy in the first place unless I knew that I had broadband in, in the little house where I was staying. And I think it's quite very easy, you know, when you're writing about the internet to kind of fall into this trap of saying, um, you know, isn't it, you know, it's disconnecting us from nature and from each other. But actually, that's not how I generally feel about it. And I kind of wanted to show some of the um, uses and positive applications. For example, you can tell exactly what a ship is that you can see yeah that's brilliant the marine tracking um website so i'd see a tanker going across the horizon and then find out that it's on its way from you know russia to aberdeen or what and what it was carrying and it increased my knowledge and awareness of of the world around me and it's you have a similar thing for for planes and and a similar bit different thing for um astronomy you know there were these um star map apps which use your location and i've used them to help expand my astronomy knowledge and at the same time you were tracking your walks around the island so mm-hmm. that you were you became part of the, the map of your journeys and the way that you traveled yeah. every day became part of it yeah and I think it's all to do with the kind of self-reflection and um, self-study that I was going through at the time and this was just another example of that and I could see for example on this walk tracking application how to begin with I walked quite a fast sort of striding out around the island but as time went on I became sort of slower and more exploratory kind of going into the inlets and caves and stuff which maybe kind of mirrored how I was becoming a little bit more able to to focus on things myself. Which these inlets they have fantastic names don't they like um was it mad geo and the mm. power of keldy yep uh yeah the um the geos all have geo rather names. than geo yeah that's the Acadian word for these um sharp inlets and i spent time yeah looking at maps sort of combining that with physical uh exploration there's an aspect to the islands which is about myth and about what is real and what isn't so for mm-hmm. example does if you see amazing lights in the sky what is it is it the northern lights mm-hmm. or then you talk there's a whole bit about the tremors Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about the tremors which feels quite scary and you can absolutely see how you would make myths around things like unexplainable tremors yeah well it's something that my dad's often mentioned um particularly when he's been in his slightly more um manic times but this idea that he has experienced this um, low-level rumble through the very earth on the uh, west coast of Orkney there. And it's not completely understood what it is. There are a number of different explanations. Some people would say it was the sonic booms from the uh, military aircraft, but it's maybe it's slightly different than that. And there's a, there's a geological explanation that it could be waves crashing into the um, caves, which uh, go, the coastline is riddled with caves. And then when they retreat, the air bubble pops and it kind of um, shakes the land. But then, uh, you know, there's also the idea that it could be, you know, more fanciful idea that it could be linked in with the mythology of sea creatures and uh, the Mucklemeester Stoorworm. Love is, the story of the Mucklemeester <laughs> Stoorworm. Um, which is um, a true story of how Orkney and Shetland and the Faroes came to be created by the uh, Mucklemeester Stoorworm's teeth uh, landing in, Having the, a battle. in the ocean. Yeah, with Assy Paddle. And, uh, who, who was a man. Um, yep, he was a, he was a boy, a kind of male kind of Cinderella type, but he managed to become a hero by defeating the 
muckle meester stewworm and uh, stuffing burning peats down its gullet uh, in which it choked and then coughed out its teeth which became the um, the islands of Orkney and Shetland and the Faroes. As means of convalescence, this is you took a really hard ro- route, didn't you? You went into absolutely into somewhere very solitary. You mentioned snorkelling in the passage at the mm-hmm. beginning, but can you, anyone imagine how cold it is to <laughs> snorkel or to swim? And there's an awful lot of sort of swimming in all weathers off the north coast, isn't there? Yeah, um, it was tough in a way going to to live on the small island by myself. But then I was from a farm, so I kind of knew a bit of the territory of what I let myself in for. And also, perhaps it was a little bit of a way of uh, escaping the world and not having to deal with you know socialising sober and uh, you know a way of gradually being able to to build myself up. But the sea swimming, it's I, I love it. It's uh, become kind of increasingly important to me. I, I go both um, by myself and with a, a group of um, mainly women. We call ourselves the um, Orkney Polar Bear Club. And in some ways, sea swimming has come to kind of fill some of the functions that alcohol um, did for me, which both it's a buzz, the cold water high is a kind of identifiable thing, and also is a kind of um, anxiety reliever. I find it a very effective for shaking out any tensions, kind of getting uh, into the cold Atlantic. And thirdly, it's something that I do to celebrate things. Um, when when my book was published last week, I went for a, a dip in uh, Scapa Bay in Orkney on a frosty morning and I went on the 1st of January. So it's kind of, you know, become, instead of having a glass or a bottle of champagne, I'll, I'll go for a sea swim. You talk in the book about how you replace one compulsion with another. And is this the compulsion that you have at the moment? Is this your form of alcoholism? Um, oh, I wish it was the only one. Um, I mean, cross addiction is something that you're, you know, the idea that in the absence of the substance of choice, for me, alcohol, you will express addictive behaviour with, with other things, be it um, shopping, sex or gambling or and you know there are a few things um including um internet use that i know that i have to to watch out for uh i think the the sea swimming is a, is a healthier manifestation of that kind of um uh which i discuss quite a bit in the book my kind of personality which is seeking the edge and seeking kind of extreme experiences and and kind of my own mania but kind of finding a way to do that sober let's just talk a little bit about the writing of this book was it hard yeah i find writing complete anguish <laughs> um and when i'm in the middle of doing it i've heard that some writers don't but i don't i don't understand that but you know i was very grateful to have the time and the space to be able to do it and it's what i've always wanted to do as well so um I was hugely motivated to do it. I just find it hard. And the book kind of grew out of a number of different places, parts of material that I had hanging around, including I started doing some columns for uh, Caught by the River, which is a nature writing website, which formed quite a number of the chapters in this book grew out of the columns that I did and then also I had kept a, a blog while I was at the treatment centre and I was in rehab, um, which I just showed to a few friends at the time. And then also I've written diaries my whole life since I was kind of eight years old. And you know, there are some lines in this book that are plucked out of my diary when I was 13 years old that I've kind of hung on to. So I've been writing myself towards this for quite a long time. And, you know, I'm really proud that I've managed to kind of uh, get it all together in a, in a finished piece. Yeah, <laughs> There's something you do about you can pack into one paragraph writing about geology, writing about yourself writing about your history is that something that you've always done not not so much i would say um i actually think as i describe it in the book it's been just in the last few years when particularly with getting this job working for the rspb it was quite a turning point and sort of opened up quite quite a lot of um new areas of interest and 
to be frank, new things to write about, which is, you know, I think as much as being interested in birds, what I'm interested in is writing about birds, which is a bit of a, bit of a distinction. Yeah, so I think these new interests that I've had kind of since I've been sober have given, you know, more of a, a depth to my writing, which, you know, if you look at my diaries from my 20s, they're entirely kind of uh, self-obsessed and uh, narcissistic. What will you do next? Um, I'm always writing um, and I'm working on what, what might become book two, uh, which I think, uh, you know, continue in the, in the non-fiction kind of um, similar tone of voice. But well, I've been living in Berlin for a while and I've been writing about urban birds of prey and techno nightclubs and traffic islands, sort of my own experience of these things as well. Uh, and I'm also interested in writing, continuing to write about uh, the internet and digital experience, which is a bit of in the outrun and... Um, I want to continue with that. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash guardian. And now for something perhaps a little Bicycle. more Bicycle. urban. Bicycle. I want to ride my Richard Lee cycled through London on a grey and grisly January morning to meet the writer and cycle courier Emily Chappell, who charts the ebb and flow of life on two wheels in the capital in her memoir, What Goes Around. Their first job was in Soho, the beating heart of courier land, where Richard was able to keep up with her just long enough to ask her about her most important possession, naturally, her bicycle. Is the bike I couriered on? Um, so it's an old friend, and it's actually it's my favourite bike. I've got a whole stable full of them, and I've got some really nice ones. And this is basically the one I like best. It's a very simple bike. It doesn't have any gears. Doesn't have a free wheel. It's got one brake. Um, it's an old 1980s steel frame, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the best and the nicest and the most comfortable to ride. So, how did you start uh, cycle couriering? Um, I never expected to. Uh, I had seen couriers around and I sort of figured out what one was when I started cycling and thought, that sounds really cool. I wish I was that cool. I'd love to do that. And was quite jealous because they just got to ride their bikes all day and I was always struggling to fit in as much cycling as I wanted to do around all the other stuff I had going on. Because, I mean, your background was in gender studies. Yeah, I've done, I've done various stuff. So I've got a degree in English and a degree in gender studies and I've done a lot of temping and things like that. I also, I was a financial editor in Delhi for a while, so I've got quite a hodgepodge of a career, none of which really settled in until this happened. And what happened was I... I finished my gender studies degree at the beginning of the recession. So you can imagine what my job prospects were like. <laughs> Applied for loads of jobs, didn't get any except this. And so thought, oh, great, well, I'm a cycle courier, get me. I'll give it a go. I might, you know, six weeks and I can say I did it. Maybe, maybe I'll last six months. And then I got it into my head. I wanted to last my first winter and that would make me a real courier. And then six years later, I sort of looked up and thought, oh, right, OK, this was my career. What's the appeal of the couriering life? I mean, is, is it an intellectual pleasure or something a little more physical? 
That's an interesting question, actually, because it is physical. It's almost entirely physical. There's very little mental challenge in it. And so I thought I was sort of bidding farewell to the life of mind and becoming a, a manual labourer. And it's very, very refreshing to just leave your brain at home and just be cycling and carrying things. And it's all very obvious and physical and move this thing from this place to this place using your muscles. But then I think that creates a lot of space for your mind to work. And I think there's something really weird and almost sort of alchemical about cycling where the movement of your legs and your breathing and moving through space makes your mind start to work. I wasn't really a writer until I was a cycle career and somehow... I think partly that, partly the way it makes your mind work and the space and the energy it gives you to think. And also the fact that you're just surrounded by life the whole time. You see everything. You see everyone in the city. You see how it works. You go in the back doors of all the buildings. You see how everything connects up. You see how things change from season to season. You develop little relationships with people that are ongoing. You see more of life and of people than I've ever seen in any other thing I've done. So where should we head to? Well, I propose we head round the corner to uh, Creative Corner, or Mona's Corner, which is where the couriers used to sit until it got knocked down and turned into a building site, like most of London. From there, we will head down, I think, to, uh, we'll head down to the temple. I'll show you one of my little quiet spots. And We're on the corner of Broadwick Street and Poland Street in Soho. And why have we come here? Well, we've come here to look at this rather unprepossessing building site, which, actually only about six months ago, was a brick building that was about 20 years old, which is where the couriers used to sit. And it had this nice little kind of benchy bit on the corner with a bit over it so it was sheltered from the rain. And this was where we all sat. And this was where we hung out and chatted and got to know each other. And there's a nice big space to park our bikes. And everyone knew this was, this was where you came. This was where you came to find people or to sit in between jobs. And now it's gone. It's been knocked down. And it's really sad. It's a bit of our our history that's gone and it's going to be probably going to be luxury flats because that's what most of London is now I have mixed feelings about all of this because I don't want to be one of those people who says oh all new things are terrible and bad and we should stay exactly as we are but I think you do have to mourn what is lost and there is so much that's lost here there's, it's not just the buildings obviously there's so many kind of traditions and people and experiences and things that happened here and they've just been erased and I think it's also the powerlessness of it, because this was, you know, this was our village, in a way. You paint a picture of, of a subculture that's very accepting of difference. Is that how it's always been? Oh, I don't know about how it's always been, but I think it has. And it's not perfect, of course. I think in any culture, in any family, you're going to have feuds and you're going to have outsiders and things like that. But I have always found the courier community really surprisingly, wonderfully accepting, because I think they have this image of being all these kind of you know aggressive young men with tattoos and a few of them are but actually once you get talking to them they're actually not they're really nice and I always thought well I'm not going to fit in and no one's going to accept me because I'm really you know I'm basically a posh bird but it wasn't like that at all uh, it was wonderful and I think it's it's a job to which outsiders gravitate which means everyone is a bit unique so one of the things that you do in the book is that you seem to go in search of this kind of mythical golden age and it seems to always vanish in front of you. I mean, is this just the condition of life or is it something more particular about cycle curing that the golden age never really existed? I wonder about this. I mean, I think it's a condition of life to, to look back on past glory, but I think couriers are also... There's, there's a bit of a vein of moaning. And now I look back on 2008 when I started and think, oh, it was great back then. I wish I could go back to that. And... 
there is a, a very strong vein of that. And I've done a lot of looking back at career history and thinking about how wonderful it must have been in the 1980s and wishing I could have done it in the 90s. But actually, it's still great. And I haven't done it for a while now. And I still really want to go back. And if I could go back and do it for a few months tomorrow, I, I really would. I'd still enjoy it. It's still, I think, a golden age. And I think maybe what it is, actually, is when you're a courier, it's your own personal golden age. Because a lot of people do it for a few years in their 20s or maybe their 30s. And then they go and they have a real life. And they're always going to look back on those days where they were just young and fit and tanned and good looking and raced around the streets. And it's inevitable, really, that you'll, you'll see that as your glory days. So where should we head next? Right, well, next we're going to head back the way we've come. We're going to go down across Cambridge Circus, through Covent Garden. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bike. I want to ride my bicycle. So where are we now? Oh, this is the Inner Temple. This is one of my my secret spots that I used to come to. Um, and I'd have deliveries and things here. And then if I didn't have another job to go on to, I'd kind of sit and listen to the fountain, um, eat some mulberries if they were in season and read my book or stare into space or something. And nobody seemed to mind me being here. It's like this little um, Harry Potter world tucked away in central London. Because it's, it's quite a contrast from the muscular transit of the streets outside. Yeah, that's something I really love about it. So Fleet Street, just outside the Royal Courts of Justice, is crazy with traffic. And I mean, you saw how hard it was for us to get across the road. And then you come through the door to Middle Temple and the traffic just kind of retreats and you're in this kind of, not silence, but this peace that you really didn't expect to find. The currying life has lived at 90 degrees to all the office workers trudging in and out of the city, to all these lawyers and these offices around us. Is that outsider's position a good position for a writer to be in? Well, I think for me is a, it's what made me a writer, really, because partly just the, the being active and on the go all the time and ha- spending most of the day with nothing really to do with my brain. It was all my legs, so my mind had a lot of energy flowing through it and spare energy to work with. But also, you see so much of life like this. You see all the different industries in the capital and how they fit together and who's sending what to whom and all the hierarchies in the offices. And you don't just kind of go in the front desk and see the way they present themselves to the world. You go in the back door often and you see who collects the package there, where they take it, who signs for it. You see people day in, day out, again and again. You see the city in all seasons and you see, you see how the traffic works. You see uh, everything. Just wondering if writing is in some sense a, it's a discipline where you examine the world and you try and set it down in some way. I'm wondering if that position of being beyond the normal flow of things is, is particularly conducive to that. I think it is, yeah. And what I was saying earlier about a lot of couriers being outsiders or feeling that they are, I've always felt like I was an outsider in everything I've done. And that's, um, I'm probably not, but I've just sort of decided to identify in that way. And so I think from that position, you're always sort of looking out at the world and thinking, well, how does this work then? Where could I pretend to fit in? And what would I like to be? Once I've figured out how I'm going to not be an outsider, which bit of the inside will I be in? So you're, you're looking speculatively at the world, figuring out how it works. Um, I think maybe almost all adults feel like that. Like you're just you're playing a game. And so you're watching the world trying to figure out the rules. Even though you're kind of uh, in the middle of millions in London here, the, the courier spends most of most of his or her time alone, accompanied only by the, the whispering of the colleagues on the radio. What's, what's that like to have the world coming to you through this machine on your shoulder? It's quite funny because um, it's this... 
again, maybe it's a little bit like the outsider thing because it's a constant conversation going on that you're party to but not really part of. You're in every maybe half an hour or so, maybe slightly more than that, you'll have a little exchange with your controller and you'll be sent a job or told to go somewhere. But mostly it's just this kind of ongoing conversation with many, many people. And it's quite boring and repetitive, really. It's just like, uh, one four, Roger, Roger, head over to the temple, Roger, Roger. Seven, 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 seven. Okay. Yeah, ready to go, EC2. Uh, terrific. So where should we head to next? Right, well, next, I think I'll take you on a nice little meander through the temple because it's lovely. And then I think we will head up Fetter Lane. And so this is one of, this is one of my favourite winter spots to stand. So when, when you're a courier, you, if there's not work, you just have to hang around and wait for work. And in the summer, that's lovely because you can just sit in a park and sunbathe. But in the winter, that's really hard because it's freezing and there's not really many places you can go. And you don't want to always be buying a coffee because if you buy a £2.80 coffee between every £2.75 job, you can sort of imagine how that's going to work out. So I would come to spots like this, which is a, a hot air vent at the top of Fetter Lane. And it's from the, the Sainsbury's Bakery. So you've not only got this lovely warm air rolling out, but you've got the smell of croissants and bagels. And I mean, that can be, that can be counterproductive as well because you often end up going in and buying one. But on really cold days, especially my first winter, I would just come and stand here and have the warm air blowing over me. And that was lovely. I want to ride my Did you find yourself looking at the city with different eyes? Oh, yeah, the... There were so many things I'd look at differently. So there's things like I've got my map of the city and it's not actually a map. It's more that wherever you are, you know of all the things that are near you. So, for example, I know if I'm near a hot air vent. So I think, right, well, if I'm going to be stopping in this area, I know I can go there and keep warm. You also know where all the toilets are. You know where things like the bins are or benches in good places where you can sit. Um, and then you know all the different shortcuts and things and you will also be looking out for shortcuts because you're still learning the whole time I'm still finding new streets London's brilliant for that you know things will come and go or they might rearrange the traffic a bit so that then one street won't be so good and you've got to find others and then there's all the all the different buildings you deliver to and they sort of build up more and more over the years so you know where almost everything is and where all the loading bays are and how to get them and you know where where the cafe is where you can get the 65p cup of tea all these things like that but it's not laid out like a map it's not laid out visually it's more like kind of pulling on a thread is it i think part of the way i think of the city is in in terms of routes Um, So I've got a lot of different, it's almost like recipes. So I've got certain routes that will take me through certain parts of the city. And if I'm planning a run from one place to another, I'll often maybe mix up two or three of them and think, right, okay, first bit of that, but then I've got to turn left so I can follow that accustomed route through there. And then I've got to be right on that street and then the building's halfway up. Okay, good. Does this process of of developing a, a new way of looking at a city, does that open your mind to other new ways of looking? I think it does. One of the more nebulous but most exciting things I got from being a courier was this sense of perpetual discovery because I still have a sense of perpetual discovery in London even though now I probably know it better than almost anyone else. I find new things and I'm excited about what might be around corners and what might be about to change. Once I'd been couriering for a while, still enjoying it, but I started to have this yearning to explore more and see more things. And so I've started doing longer bike journeys and I've I've cycled across Asia and across Iceland and I've done some very cold bits of North America in winter. You keep discovering things about yourself and about your cycling and about the world. I'm never going to be able to go back to 
a desk job now or any really conventional form of life because the thought of it always being the same and never changing and never having this kind of sense of excitement and sense that you're learning constantly I just it's not only that I wouldn't want to do it I couldn't if I find myself in that situation I would learn it and that would be exciting and then when it stopped being exciting I would have to change and that's more kind of a door being opened rather than kind of a habit that needs to be practiced yeah I mean as a courier you're always looking for doors you're often looking for the doors that you're not supposed to see so you know you go past the big main entrance you've got to find the small grey door with no sign on it round the back and then you go through this door and you know you're in this whole world you didn't know existed and so it does make you look at doors differently and think well you know what's behind there is there a new life behind there so here we are on, on Holborn Viaduct here we are. There's a, there's a scene in the book on Holborn Viaduct where um, I come to Holborn Viaduct to look at Holborn Viaduct. So I've just read an Iris Murdoch book where there is a scene on Holborn Viaduct. And I've just realised that now here I am with my own book in my hand, which contains that pilgrimage to Holborn Viaduct. And it all feels a bit circular. <laughs> so um, do you want to read something from the book for us now then? Uh, certainly. Riding through busy traffic is, needless to say, a challenging process, and the stakes are high. Any small error on your part or that of a nearby driver or pedestrian could result in catastrophe, though this will rarely be at the forefront of your mind. Despite the life-or-death context in which the courier operates, the standard manoeuvres of her job, moving across five lanes of fast-moving traffic on Park Lane or accelerating through the handlebar-wide gap between two moving buses on Oxford Street, become as comfortable, habitual and automatic as those of any other occupation. Like learning to use a spreadsheet or operate a till, or typing your password into the system at the beginning of the day, the tricks and habits of riding through traffic start off as something you have to concentrate on and remind yourself of, but very quickly become second nature, something you'll do without even thinking about it. How many of us can't remember our password anymore and just rely on our fingers to fall on the right combination of keys? It's curious, although I frequently credit my years as a courier with teaching me to think and to observe and to engage with the world, like never before, much of the satisfaction of the job comes from the irrelevance of thought, the joy of watching your body develop its own intelligence, the satisfaction of subordinating reason to instinct. Riding through busy traffic requires awesome feats of internal mathematics that my conscious brain could never hope to accomplish. You plot a curve to your right round that taxi, taking into account the couple of feet it will have moved in relation to the white van next to it by the time you reach it. And then that curve gives way to a leftward curve across the front of the taxi and behind the Luton van that a second ago was in a completely different lane. The leftward curve is already coiled in your muscles, all plotted out before you even start the rightward one, as well as the exact way in which the one will segue into the other. But the traffic is a complex dynamic force. Not chaos by any means, but an order composed of so many discrete and differing parts that it can never, even for one moment, be grasped and understood. The joy of riding along as part of it lies half in the sense of relaxing into the patterns you know so well, half in the hyper-alertness and intense concentration required to anticipate every possible disruption. One vehicle might break suddenly, halted by an obstacle ahead that you are unable to see from your position behind. An indicator might start to flash, or the lights ahead might change and the traffic might start to flow more quickly. A pedestrian, or worse, two or three, might decide to dart between two crawling buses. There might be a pothole that you've forgotten about, or which wasn't there last time you rode this way. 
So my body writes countless contingencies into the trajectory it's plotted among the vehicles, and with every flicker of my eyes mounts a fresh reconnaissance, taking in the road and the pavements and their contents, calculating all possible movements of each element of the traffic and their interplay with all the others, trying to eliminate all surprises and anticipate all impediments. Most of the time, my mind has very little idea of what's going on and wouldn't be able to keep up if it tried. So, where have we got to now? Well, this is Hobbin Viaduct. So, this is, um, this is what I think of as the spine of the city. It's like the spine of a book. So, you've got this uh, long road here, which is Farringdon, which used to be the bed of the Fleet River. And then Holborn Viaduct is where Holborn crosses Farringdon, and it's quite high up. It's a bridge above Farringdon. So you can look down the sweeping road of Farringdon all the way down to the river. It almost kind of lays the city out for you, doesn't it? It does. You have a, a lot more perspective when you're standing here. You can see more space around you, so you have more of a sense of where you are, I think. As you say in the book, it wasn't until the end of your first winter on the road that you started carrying around a book in your career bag. What's it like to read about the city you're riding through? It's wonderful. Um, I think even before I was a courier, I had a bit of a fetish for reading books in the place where they're set, because sometimes it's nothing like that, and you're sitting in exactly the spot, and the weather's different, and it feels different, and that's an interesting contrast. And then sometimes it's exactly the same, and that's amazing too. And so I came here because I was reading a book by Iris Murdoch called Under the Net, and there's one scene where the characters come to Holborn Viaduct and it's a blazing hot summer evening. I think it's about nine or ten at night, but the sky is still bright and it's very, very quiet. And I came here and I think it was a, an afternoon in January and it was just approaching rush hour, so it was quite loud and busy and the sun had already set and it was raining and cold and drizzly. And yet here I was in exactly the same place as I was in the book. Couriering is a resolutely analogue pursuit in a digital age. I mean, do you think London's still going to be full of cycle couriers in 20, 50 years? That's a good question. Um, and I optimistically think there will always be a place for couriers. It might be a very different place. So, for example, before the internet, any paper, any envelope, any document would always go by courier. And that, I think, is what most people think of as the golden age. And now, of course, a lot of stuff can go by email. A lot of stuff still can't, so you've got the very big files that still actually get sent by courier because they're faster that way. But then the markets will change and evolve. There's always going to be the need to send small items very fast from one place to another. So I think there will always be some form of cycle courier. Is that part of its appeal, is this idea that it's very physical work and this very virtual work? Yeah, that is, for me, that was one of the initial appeals and the fascinations with couriers because... I think when I first saw them or heard of them, I, I sort of thought, I thought we'd have grown out of that by now because, you know, we've got all this really sophisticated technology and we've got this amazing public transport system and we've got email and all of that. And yet there's still these people on smelly bikes pedalling around. There go some of them now. But I was also really delighted by this because you have this sense, I think, that you're that you're a human being ducking in and out of the machine and you're still real and everything else has just become this kind of futuristic world. And what are you doing now? Have you joined the machine yourself? No, not really. <laughs> I mean, in some senses I have. I'm not a courier anymore, though I might go back. You, there's always a chance you might go back and I'd love to go back. But now I'm a writer predominantly and I've moved to Wales, which is where I grew up. 
So now my life consists of sitting at a desk and tapping away at a laptop for half the day. And then the other half of the day, I go out and ride my bike, except there are no taxis and there are no traffic lights and there are no pigeons and there are no drain covers and there are no pedestrians. And I can just ride and ride and ride and ride and ride. And it's wonderful. And that was Emily Chappell leaving Richard Lee for dust there, ending today's podcast. What Goes Around, a London Cycle Courier's Story, is published by Faber and Faber. And Amy Liptrot's The Outrun is published by Canongate. Both are out now. I'm off to the bike sheds now to pick up my own rusty steed. We'll be back next week, but if you have anything you'd like to discuss before then, please do leave a comment on the podcast page, which you can find by searching for Guardian Books Podcast. It's been strangely quiet over the new year. Is there anybody out there? We really would love to hear from you. But for now, our thanks to Amy, Emily and Richard. From me, Claire Armitstead and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.